0: can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when I when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask him to bless it. Lord, there is nothing that we need more than to know you and to believe in your son for another day and another week. Would you, by your spirit, use the word today to accomplish that in our lives? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, If you think about all of the relationships that you have in life. Uh, I think that if I asked you, are your relationships important? You would say yes, yes. All the relationships I have are important to me. Um, But at the same time, I wonder if I asked you which relationships in your life do you know totally changed your life the minute that they began? I wonder how much smaller that list would become in each of our lives. For me, it would be my wife and children. Uh, It would be my my childhood friend, Matt. And then I know there are other relationships in my life that are important, but I'm not sure there are any that had changed the direction of my life like those people. And maybe your list is bigger. Maybe you're a better friend than I am. Maybe that's why my list is so short. But um, this morning, though, we meet two men who, without, I think, a hint of controversy, it is safe for us to say that they absolutely have one of those life-changing moments. They begin one of those life-changing relationships here because nothing in their lives is ever the same again after they meet Jesus. So as we come to this passage, you know, we, we come with sort of this overriding question. The way that Philip and Nathaniel meet Jesus has a tremendous impact on them and on the rest of their lives. The question is this. Jesus already called Andrew and John and Peter last week, but what do we learn about being disciples from the way that Jesus calls these men here this morning? Well, first this morning, we meet Philip, and Philip is from the same city as Andrew and Peter, uh, and we met them last week. And in the passage, it tells us that Jesus goes out and he finds Philip personally and says to Philip, follow me. Now, this is what I think is interesting about Philip. The way he gets called is different from the way all the other disciples were called last week. Because you probably maybe remember that last week, the other disciples started following Jesus because of other people. You had John and Andrew. They started following Jesus because of John the Baptist's testimony. And then you had Peter who came to Jesus because his brother Andrew brought him to Jesus. And so everybody last week came to Jesus through somebody else's invitation. And by the way, uh, I've pointed this out in the past, but statistically speaking, the new people that, that come to church come because someone they know invited them. They usually don't come because they, they saw an advertisement. They usually don't come because they, spur of the moment, just drove past and decided to come. They do sometimes. Uh, they statistically come because somebody they know invited them because they had some connection with somebody in the church. And that person was the one that invited them to come. And so they started to come. And if you look in your own life, you'll probably realize, hey, that's why I started coming or that's why my parents started coming. You had some connection with somebody there. But this is not the case of Philip. With Philip, Philip doesn't fit the pattern. And Nathaniel, who comes later in the passage, doesn't fit that pattern either. The question is this. What does this show us today? Jesus goes. He finds these two men himself. He doesn't use anyone else to accomplish his purpose. And when you compare this passage with what happened last week and how they came to Jesus, Rick Phillips points out two things, two things about being a disciple. The first is this. Conversions can be unique. Conversions can be unique. Um, We see this. Conversions are not one size fits all. There are things that make conversions stand out from each other, sometimes very radically. Sometimes conversions are very, very different from one another. And if we went around and asked each of you, how did you come to Jesus? How did you become a believer in the first place? You would have a very different story than potentially the person sitting immediately right next to you. Um, Because there are just things happening in your life Maybe sometimes crisis moments that sort of drive you to the Lord and you say, I need something more than this situation to find my security in. Or maybe you just grew up in the church and you've just known the gospel since you were young. Those are very different, <laughs> very different conversion stories. Um, and first, though, um, uh, one of the things that I think you probably maybe you know this about about me and. And my wife at least when we met we were going to christian college together and we had an evangelism class together i think right Uh, it was an evangelism class and we were supposed to share our conversion story with the class and my my wife's conversion story was very different from my own and mine was very by the books literally just kind of i read books i saw that jesus was true and i believed in him my wife's was very different and when we first met each other, we didn't like each other. She was annoyed by me. She was annoyed by my uh, square conversion story. And, and I was annoyed by her super emotional tears and stuff when she told her story because that's just not me. And boy, you'd think, well, one person at this school I know I'm not gonna end up with is her. And she was probably thinking the exact same thing about me. And that's, that's why we're together today because we annoyed each other and just kept it up for years and years and years. Um, but we have very different conversion stories. If you sat there and asked both of us to share, you would, you'd be like, well, um, hers is more interesting. Sorry, Adam. <laughs> Yours isn't very exciting. And here's the thing. God calls people in vastly different ways. You know, the way you came to Christ is not the way that I came to Christ, almost certainly. Um, some people have radical conversion stories. Some people not so radical. Some people don't remember their conversions. And Philip shows us here this morning that the way he comes to Christ is not the way Peter came to Christ. The way Philip came to Christ and Nathaniel come to Christ, came to Christ is not the same way that Andrew came to Jesus. So uh, conversions are different. But here's the other side of that. Conversions are also similar. Uh, they have similarities. One of the things that really comes out in this passage is that being converted means following Jesus. And that's exactly what Philip does. Just like the other guys, right? Peter and Andrew and John and Nathaniel and Philip all have one thing in common besides who they're called to follow. It's that they follow him. Being a disciple means following Jesus. And so let's draw a couple of things out of that. What does following Jesus mean? Following Jesus means trusting him alone for salvation. We know that Andrew And we know that John explicitly heard John the Baptist share the message, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They heard that message. Now, they probably didn't understand all that that meant. They probably didn't understand the fullness of who Jesus is and his whole ministry and what he's really come to accomplish. But they did know at least this much. Following this man means following the Lamb who was slain or would be slain for their sin. And I want you to know, following Jesus without trusting him first is like living in a prison. Following Jesus, emulating him in your life without trusting him is like torture because you're trying to live the Christian life by sheer willpower. And yet you don't know forgiveness and without having the Holy Spirit and knowing forgiveness from sin so that when you do mess up, and you will in the Christian life, so that when you do sin or when you do mess up, you need to know that there's still life there for you. Uh, Otherwise, it's pure torture. People today do not understand the gospel. Now, that's a super generic statement to make because you are people, and I hope you understand the gospel. But if you talk to an average person Maybe they attended church when they were a child. Maybe they have a passing knowledge of Christianity. What you find out is that most people don't really understand what the gospel says, and they don't know what Christianity says. They think that Christianity is about being a good person, and they think that it's about being a good neighbor. And so when you talk to somebody who says, and I've had this happen, where I say, just say, have you... have?" Do you know who Jesus is? They say, Yeah, I've had the Jesus thing. I've tried that already. And when you talk to them more, what you discover is what they really mean is, I tried being a good person. I tried being a good person. I tried following the rules. And so what they didn't try was Christianity. What they tried was moralism. And it may be their fault. Maybe they were content to try out something shallow, but it may also be that's what their church taught them be a good person, be a good neighbor. Make sure to to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Be a good American. You know, sometimes that sort of thing is just deep enough for people to say, I've tried it. I've done it. It just wasn't good enough for me. And what I would say is this. That is like somebody trying Pepsi Clear back in the 80s. And then for the rest of their life, they don't drink Pepsi because they say, I tried Pepsi. So you didn't try Pepsi. You tried Pepsi Clear. That doesn't count as a drink even. Um. G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, it is not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It is that it's been found difficult and left untried. So what he's suggesting is people don't really understand Christianity. What they understand is the easiest thing to dismiss. But if they understood the depth of it, if they understood what it was really about, if they knew that it was more than just moralism and being a good person... They would not have that same response. Listen, scripture is very clear. You you cannot be good enough. Moralism is not satisfying. Moralism will not fill your heart. Moralism will not give you joy. You cannot clean your life up enough. There is no effort of yours that can drag your sorry soul one foot closer to heaven. You have to trust Jesus to drag you there. That's the gospel message that's the first similarity in conversions is you have to trust in Christ alone. There's another similarity. All conversions call us to imitate Christ. Now, notice this comes after the previous one. If you do this one first, that's the moralism we were just talking about. But if you follow Christ, if you trust in Christ first, then the second thing is not moralism. What, what it means is this, we're called to copy Jesus in our lives once we trust him, once we love him, once we believe in him. Jesus says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so the, the word Christian itself even just means little Christ, and that is us. This is meant to be how we live our lives. We, we don't copy the life of Jesus so that we can be saved We don't feel secure in our salvation because we are imitating him, but we strive to live like him because we've been united to him through faith. And so being a disciple means that once we trust in him, once we've been saved by him, then we strive and fail. We run and fall down and he picks us up and then we keep going. And so being Jesus disciple does means not living life our way. This is one of the toughest messages, by the way, for for modern people to hear. There are many, many people. They reject Christianity because they say, I don't like what it teaches about morality. I have heard a message from the culture that believes something different, and I'm afraid to go against that. So I'm not even going to consider Christianity because Christianity teaches things that I think are retrograde or things that I think are old fashioned or things that I don't think are going to work in this world anymore. And so people just say no to Christianity Because they come in with a preconceived moral system before they even listen to the message of salvation or hear what it really has to say. One of the toughest messages for modern people to hear is God might disagree with you about what the world is like. God might actually have to tell you that you don't understand and you need to listen to him instead. And that's not a popular message for people to hear. And and the other side of that is that oftentimes the toughest thing for people to hear is that following Jesus doesn't just mean adding on to my life plan. Um, You know, I think people instinctively think that following Jesus is going to make their life better, that they're going to be happier. Um, They think that following Jesus means life our way, just happier, Um, life our way, just more fulfilled. Um, life my way, the way I've always pictured it, maybe with just less difficulty or less sorrow. And so the blueprint we have for our own lives sort of planned out is, I have it all planned out. I know what my life is gonna be. All I need is just something to make it less empty feeling. And that's what we think Jesus does with us. But here's the thing. Jesus makes impositions on us. Jesus calls us to do hard things. He, he calls us to do things that he would do and maybe that we wouldn't do. He asks us to do things that not only rub us the wrong way, but that we would never pick otherwise. Um, and maybe, maybe you've seen how this happens in your, in your everyday life. I can give you an example from high school. Um, when I was in high school, there was a girl I was interested in. And she was not a Christian. And I had just become a Christian maybe six months before. I was very interested in her. I told my friends, I said, hey, there's this girl. She's not a Christian. What do you think? I said, ah, before you say anything, I have a plan. Missionary dating. Missionary dating. What do you think? She's not a believer yet, but she will be once she gets to know me. And once I make her come to youth group with me, you know, her whole life's going to turn around. And they just shook their head. They said, Adam, you have a terrible plan. I said, why? They said, because the Bible says that you're supposed to be with believers. You're supposed to have relationships with believers. And certainly, what if, you, what if she never became a Christian and you decided to marry her? You'd be going against the Bible. Bible says you're supposed to be equally yoked. And so they came to me with this news. I didn't like hearing that. I didn't like hearing <laughs> That, that Jesus calls me only to have a relationship with a believer. Here's this girl. She's available. She's not a believer. What's so wrong? And what I saw was that Jesus does indeed push against our life plans and say, no, you don't get to do life your way. You're going to do life my way. And they were right. And they were good friends for telling me that. And a good friend, by the way, does tell another friend when they're on the wrong path, they're going to do that. But Jesus was imposing upon me a plan that I had and he was telling me that I didn't get to do life my way, that I would have to do it his way. And it was for the better. Being a disciple means set aside the question, what will please me today? Instead, it means asking the question, what will please God? And oftentimes the answer to that is not the same as what would please me. So what God does is this. He he intends to turn over our priorities. He turns our priorities upside down. What did he say? He said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What's he doing? He's calling you to die to yourself. He's calling you not to have your life blueprint. He's telling you to follow his blueprint instead. Have you changed tracks in your life? Have you switched off from following your plan to following his plan? Have you, have you become a disciple of Jesus? Have you relinquished your life to him and said, I'll live life your way instead of my way? Because if you're a disciple, that's your calling. That's what he calls you to. And surely if you ask an experienced Christian here, they could probably give you examples of the way that life, God's way, has not looked like life their way. Um, Not taking a job because it would involve sin. Not marrying that person because God has said no. Um, Resisting sinful urges when part of us just really wants to disobey God. This is part of what it is to be a disciple. To follow, live life Jesus' way. to, To follow his way. And what we should do, though, is we should expect that there will be friction in our lives between what we want and what God wants. In fact, if you think you have your life figured out and you experience no friction between God's calling and what you want for your life, you should seriously question whether or not you're hearing God's plan for your life at all, whether God's calling on your life matters at all, because for, for, the, for saints, there should be friction. You should feel frustration, and that's how you know you're hearing from him, one of the ways, at least. The other way is you see it in the text. And so Philip comes to Jesus because Jesus found him, but Philip doesn't stop there. He immediately goes and he finds our, the second person we meet, which is Nathaniel. And Nathaniel, I have a real affinity for Nathaniel, and, and the reason I, I have an affinity for Nathaniel is, you know we always talk about Simon Peter as if he 's the big mouth. you know we talk about Simon Peter as if he 's the guy that is, is the exclusive disciple who puts his foot in his mouth. And here, I think Nathaniel totally outdoes Peter. Um, as far as first impressions go, you can't have a better first impression than what happens here, um, at least from a social perspective. Look at what happens. Philip comes. He, he tells Nathaniel about Jesus. He says he's from Nazareth, and Nathaniel 100% makes a prejudiced statement about Jesus because of where he's from. Nazareth, nothing good comes from that place. Right? He, he says this, uh, I think the implication is he says this away from Jesus. Um, this is the sort of thing you do not say to someone you're about to meet, right? This is not the thing, the way that you talk about this person. And I bet you can relate to this. You ever have conversations with people that are not really for public consumption? You, know, you, you said it, and it was for this person to hear. It wasn't for everybody to hear you know, uh, maybe you, you, you joke around with people that you're really comfortable with, and so you sort of you sort of uh, you know you loosen your tie a little bit around them. And I kind of think that's what Nathaniel does here. You know, he he knows Philip. He has he seems to have a rapport with him, and so the first thing that comes to mind is, oh yeah, Nazareth, that place is trashy. <laughs> Nobody good comes out of that town, and and, and Philip. Philip gives him a wonderful answer. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. He he basically says, this is the second time now that someone's been told in this book to come and see Jesus. And there's a lesson here, even in this response. And the, the response shows us Jesus can stand up to scrutiny. Um. In fact, unlike you or me, the more Nathaniel looks at Jesus, the more impressed he's going to be with him, the more impressed he's going to be with his life, with his teaching, with everything about him, the more he'll see that not only was he prejudiced against Nazarenes, but that something good can come out of a bad place. And you could zoom out and say the same thing about Earth, by the way. You could see the angels saying, "Earth, can anything good come out of Earth?" <laughs> and yet here they are. Here Jesus comes. And, of course, as he starts to approach Jesus, he finds out that through the either because he had good hearing or because maybe he wasn't far away or through the power of the Holy Spirit, one way or another, Jesus heard Nathaniel's comment. In fact, in fact basically, he seems to have Nathaniel's whole personality pegged and he lays it out with one sentence. He says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. In other words, Jesus basically walks towards Nathanael and goes, finally, somebody around here who says what they think. Somebody around here who speaks his mind, finally. You can just imagine, Nathanael just wants to melt as Jesus is walking toward him. This is is bad. Nathanael just got caught basically gossiping about a man he hadn't even met yet. Um, Worst case scenario, he got caught saying what he thinks. You know, culture is sort of built around a certain set of rules, right? Some of them unwritten rules. You know, order is maintained by everyone uh, agreeing to this set of social mores that we all have together. So one of those social mores is you can say what you think, just not to the person you think it about, right? The society would fall apart if we did that. Um, Well, actually, that's gossiping, but but we allow that. We allow ourselves to talk about other people to other people. Just don't tell the person if you've got an issue with them. And then there's this other rule that says if you overhear someone talking about you, you need to pretend you didn't hear them talking about you. That's another social rule. You're not supposed to let on that you heard them talking badly about you. That's social decorum. But that decorum is just is out the window in this situation because Jesus is just celebrating the honesty of Nathaniel, And Nathaniel is mortified, probably, that Jesus just said that. He can't believe he got caught. He can't believe Jesus is admitting that he heard him in the first place. Um, if, <clears throat> if you watch The Office, this is one of those scenes where Jim would look at the camera and kind of smirk. You know, <sighs> and if you don't watch The Office, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But Nathaniel doesn't have time to smirk. Nathaniel's just amazed, right? He asks Jesus, he says, how do you know me? In other words, he says, I've only said a couple of things, and I didn't even say them to you, and you seem to have me figured out. Yeah, I am like that. I, I am pretty plain spoken. Yeah, I am the kind of person that just says what's on my mind. I tell it like it is. And yeah, that gets me in trouble. People who tell it like it is, by the way, they know that it gets them in trouble, uh, but they can't bear the thought of just keeping it to themselves. Uh, maybe I can relate to that. I don't know. But my, my question for you, Jesus, is how do you know me? And the answer he gets is something that it makes sense to him. And it doesn't make sense to us. The answer he gets is before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And here's what we're thinking as readers. We're thinking, what happened under the fig tree? What, what was going on there? Jesus knows something about Nathanael that nobody else in the whole world could possibly know. Maybe he had an experience. Maybe he was praying. Uh, maybe he was thinking of, of joining the rest of Israel and getting baptized by John. You know, the list of things that could have happened under the fig tree is almost endless, and we don't know. But the point is, Jesus says the one thing that breaks through, and Nathanael is shaken by it. Now, Jesus, aside from Jesus' perception of this man, we learn something else about a disciple here. First of all, we find out that we can be wrong about people. Um, You know, we might hold a prejudiced view about people, either because of their race or their class, the country they're from, because of their income, how they keep up their appearances, the town they're from, the part of town they're from, um, or maybe we just know that they've made mistakes in life. And so we prejudge them beforehand. Nathaniel is humiliated here because of his prejudice. And the thing about prejudice is that we typically don't know that we have it. We aren't even aware of it. We just think this is the normal way of seeing the world. And Nathaniel's prejudice is exposed here by Jesus. But here's what Jesus does. Instead of shaming him or, or trying to get him fired from his job or something like that, he takes a gentle approach. He actually almost does it with humor and a wink. You know, he exposes it, he lets him see it, and then he almost leaves it to the Lord. How are you going to deal with this guy? We need to ask God to help us not to prejudge someone, just like Nathaniel shouldn't have done. You know, have you ever thought to yourself, this person doesn't want to hear the gospel? I've decided in advance if I told the gospel to this person, he wouldn't want to hear it. How do you know that? How do you know that? Didn't you know that the if the apostle Paul could become a Christian? There's literally nobody that you could prejudge whether they're going to respond to the gospel. We need to ask God for the same grace that Nathaniel needed here. But, but we also learn something else. God decided to send his son to a place that really wasn't very respectable, didn't he? Uh, he sent his son to Nazareth. He didn't send his son to, to na- that Nashville. you know. He sent him to the boonies, not New York City. Um, He sent him to the swamplands, not to some populated metropolis. Um, He was from the place you tell your friends not to go on vacation. You know those kind of places? I grew up in one of those places. You know, the sort of places that, that they're forgotten by politicians. They're forgotten by big corporations. And maybe you grew up in a place like that, too. But the plan of Almighty God was to send his son to that place, to the forgotten place, to the the faraway corner that nobody's thinking about, that's not on anybody's mind. And that's because that's his pattern, that's his way. He uses the forgotten, unwanted things of this world. Think about Paul in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Nathaniel gets shamed here. And he's, he's one of those wise people who knows where great leaders come from, right? It isn't Nazareth. At least that's what he thinks. And so, even in the moment, and even in the way he calls Nathaniel, God is sanctifying this man almost before he's even had a chance to start following him yet. What does he do? He exposes in him something that needs to be put to death. What I would say to you, Christian, is expect that in your own life as you follow Jesus you don't always feel better about yourself. Sometimes you end up feeling worse about yourself and seeing things in your own heart that you didn't know you had before and you don't like it very much what you see. That's part of being a disciple, hearing things and seeing things about yourself that you'd rather not focus on. Now, finally, though, the the passage takes a turn. We encounter what I'm going to call the ladder. I have the least catchy outline I've ever had here this morning, Philip, Nathaniel, the ladder, this is nuts. Well, um, you might say, why would you even call this part the ladder? If you read the narrative, you don't even see the word ladder in it. Well, um, I'll show you, but first look at the text. Remember, Jesus has just blown Nathaniel's mind because he saw this moment under the fig tree. But then Jesus says something to him. He says, "Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? And then he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So Nathaniel's is convinced all it took was something that only Jesus could know. But but Jesus responds to him in essence by saying, that is nothing. You are going to see greater things. You're going to see angels ascending and descending on me. Now, I remember the first time I read this, and I remember thinking, this is nuts. This is some super religious saying, and I don't know anything about this. This doesn't make sense. And I just moved on. I just remember, I didn't get anything out of it. I just didn't think much about it. You know, what a strange thing to say. You will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Uh, that is not terminology we are used to. That is not terminology that we employ very often. The only way is that, that you can make sense out of this is if you've read the book of Genesis. And if you've read chapter 28. Because back in Genesis 28, Jacob was in this traumatic season of his life, and he's on the run from his brother Esau. And in verse 11, it says that he came to a certain place, and he stayed there with his head laying on a stone, and he slept. And then in verse 12, it says something that I think even if you read the Old Testament, without Jesus, this wouldn't make sense. It says, "And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And then in verse 16, it says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. So Jacob had a dream. Even in the context of Genesis, this is a tough passage to understand. I honestly don't think this is a sensible passage until the New Testament 2,000 years later. Jesus comes in 33 AD, and that is the only time we actually make sense of this vision where people have some sort of access to heaven. And Jesus comes to Nathaniel and he says, you're going to actually see that dream from Genesis 28 come true in me. I'm going to fulfill it. So to put it bluntly here, Jesus is not claiming to be a prophet when he says this because what does a prophet do a prophet points the way he says here's the way over here here's the way over here go this way but what Jesus tells Nathanael is shocking in its scope because he doesn't just say listen to me i'll show you the way let's let's go together instead he says i am the way you should go i am the ladder to heaven i am the way and the truth and the life And this is what separates Jesus from every other religious leader in all of history. Because Jesus does not claim to know the way. He claims to be the way. He doesn't show them, oh, the ladder to heaven is is over here. Instead, he says, come to me. I'm the bridge to heaven. I'm the ladder to heaven. I'm the one that takes you there. Think of the movement of this, this passage. It starts with these men. They didn't know Jesus before today, and now they're followers of him. And and they start out knowing nothing about what lay in store for them, and, and by the end, they're hearing something unbearably glorious and truly unexpected. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know that you have peace with him? To put it bluntly, do you want to go to heaven? The answer of Jesus Christ is this, you cannot do it except through him. There are not many ladders to heaven. There are not many paths reaching into the sky. There are no other ways that scripture tells us. In fact, the scripture says there is no other way to heaven except through Jesus Christ. And so what did he do? He taught this to his disciples and he teaches it to us through them. He is the way. Trust in him. Believe in him. And follow him. Be his disciple. Anything else you try... Any other method you attempt to crack the code of life is going to end in moralism, it's going to end in distress, and it's going to end in bondage. In other words, do what Jesus tells Philip and Nathaniel. Follow him. And you will see greater things than these. Let's pray. Our God, we rejoice that you sent your son into the world Not not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We rejoice that he came calling sinners to follow him. And we thank you that you love us enough to cause friction in the lives of your people. Calling us to abandon our way and follow yours instead. If there is some vestige of our old lives that we continue to cling to, would you reprove us? If there's some way that we're refusing to follow you, some area that we've not yielded our life to you, would you show us? But most importantly, O God, would you grant us the ongoing gift of faith, preserving us as your disciples, keeping us in your strong right hand. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.